For those of you who have either been missed the last couple of weeks or are just joining us for the first time, we have been in a study through the book of Ephesians, um, and it's going to take us just a couple more weeks to finish. And quite honestly, this has been one of my favorite studies that we've done in a long time. I have gotten, I have learned so much through this process. And I, in talking with Jeff, we just continue to hear stories of how God is using the message that Paul penned some 2,000 years ago to radically speak into our reality right now. And it's just, it's beautiful how relevant and powerful God's word is. Um, And the last couple of weeks in particular, we have been listening to Paul talk about what happens when the children of God, which is who we are, live out of our identity and don't follow the ways of the world, but rather follow the ways of Christ, emulating him. And when we do that, we live so counterculturally to the world around us that our lives shine in the darkness like these candles do. When when we submit to one another, not because one another is worthy, but we do so out of reverence to Christ, our wives submitting to their husbands, husbands sacrificially loving and laying down their lives for their wives like Jesus did, children honoring their parents, parents, particularly fathers, this is speaking to me, not frustrating, exasperating, constantly pointing out the, the failures of their kids, but rather building them up, training them up, loving them up into adults, slaves or, or, or workers who work for their employers as if they were working for God, which means that even when the, your employer is not there, you're not playing solitaire. You're actually working, every, bringing all of yourself to bear on what it is. And employers recognizing that their employees are just as valuable in God's eyes as they are and therefore treating them with respect, dignity, and love. That is countercultural. And that is, that does not always jive with the reality of life, does it? Because the reality of life is often a lot grittier. It would be nice if marriages within the church worked in that way. But oftentimes they don't. Oftentimes it still is a power struggle. It would be nice if parents and kids operated in that way. But oftentimes, even within the church, it is an absolute power struggle. And we as parents exasperate. I, as a father, exasperate my sons regularly. Not intentionally. And my kids don't always do what I want. And employers and employees, this becomes this constant back and forth where you get it, right? The world doesn't always work this way. And so it could be easy for us to write off what Paul has said over, and, and what we've looked at over these last couple of weeks as fanciful. Be nice if it worked that way, but it doesn't. And Paul recognizes that it doesn't always work that way. He recognizes that there is strife in this world. And so he ends his letter by addressing that very thing. If you have a Bible, uh, grab it and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. There's only really one more section here. We are going to actually divide it into two. And we will tackle only about three verses today. And we'll tackle the rest of it next week. But in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul says this in response to he understands the recognition that the world doesn't always work the way that he just described it within the Christian home. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God 
so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now let's just stop there for a moment. That's as far as we're going to get today. But it's, it's important that we pause and really dig into what he's just said because he has in many ways pulled back the curtain on a, on a worldview that differs greatly to the worldview that much of our world, and in, many, in, case, in some cases, many of us carry around with us because we are products of the Enlightenment. We're products of the scientific revolution that says the only things that exist are what we can see with our eyes, touch with our hands, and study in a laboratory. What Paul is saying is that reality is much more complex than that, and there is more to this world than meets the eye. And so it's not just things that you can see, touch, and feel, but there is a spiritual realm that coincides with our realm and, in fact, does affect our reality on a daily basis, whether we recognize that fact or not. And he points out in verse 12 that when it comes to the conflict we experience in this world, that conflict is not against flesh and blood. It's not against one another. It's not against our neighbor. It's not against a a kid at school. It's not against our spouse or our children or our parents. It's not against our boss or one of our employees. Our conflict is against another spiritual force. But let us be honest here for a minute. It's really, really easy to view the people next to us or the people who live across the street from us and love to blare their music or the people that are competing with us for a job promotion. It's really easy to view them as the enemy. It's really easy to view somebody with a different uh, political bent who is sitting in a position of authority and making decisions that are contrary to how you might make choices. It's very easy to view them as the enemy. And what Paul is saying is, listen, they are not your enemy. They are just just as much image bearers of their creator as you are. And as image bearers, even if they don't know God and call him their father, he still loves them. Jesus still died for them. And so do not do your true enemy's work for him by tearing down the very people that Jesus Christ came to save. Instead, what Paul does is he opens our eyes to the true enemy. And that true enemy is the same enemy that has been trying to thwart God's purpose and plans from the very beginning of creation, all the way back in Genesis 3. He was... Our true enemy is both Satan and the spiritual forces that have aligned themselves against God and said, at all costs, we will try to thwart what you are doing. Of course, this begs the question, well, why? Why do we have an enemy who is trying to take us down? What, What on earth do we draw his attention for? First off, let's remember the whole foundation for this book that we've been reading. The letter of Ephesians is based off of the idea that our identity is founded in Christ. That we, because of what Jesus did on the cross, are called sons and daughters of God. That's who we are. That's our identity. And as his sons and daughters, not only have we inherited eternal life, 
we've also inherited his enemy. But Paul just assumes this is true. He doesn't actually go into the why or the how, uh, but thankfully there's other passages in Scripture that do. So let's go to the very fun, very unexplored or sometimes overexplored book of Revelation for a moment. I know that many of you were probably doing your, de- your Christmas devotionals out of it this morning. Go to Revelation chapter 12. As you're turning there, I just want to I, I remind us of what we're about to read. Revelation is a genre of literature that is totally different from any other genre in the Bible, and it is very different from any kind of genre that we have in our culture today. Uh, Revelation is called apocalyptic literature, and apocalyptic literature attempts to explain kind of supernatural things that you can't see with your eyes using pictures and metaphors that help put things into perspective, but but we don't want to press it too much. For instance, this is an example. When at one point it says that there's a double-edged sword coming out of Jesus's mouth, that does not mean that you'd be afraid of his tongue cutting you, okay? It means that he is wise and is able through his words to cut through any lie. That's how that symbolism is intended to be used. So we don't want to press this too far. But what we see is, is kind of the formation of the battle that we find ourselves in, the war that it brews around us in the spiritual realm, and the enemy that we are up against and why he's looking to take us down. So let's begin reading in chapter 12, verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. Some people suggest, some theologians suggest, hey, this is a description of the early church, the 12 stars being the 12 disciples. Um, Others say, no, this is obviously speaking about Mary who gave birth to Jesus. I would tend to to lean in more with the second one because in verse 2 it says, this woman was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns on his head. Heads in apocalyptic literature speak to either wisdom or, or cunningness, and, and, and horns are, are, are symbolic of power, crowns symbolic of authority. So what we see is this is a very powerful, very cunning enemy that has a great amount of authority. Verse four, this dragon's tail, tail, wow, this dragon's tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. Gives you a new perspective on silent night, doesn't it? She gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. This is talking about the Messiah, Jesus. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. If you remember the, uh, the nativity story, Satan praying upon Herod's insecurities used him as a pawn to get him when he heard from the Magi in the east that the the long-awaited Messiah, King of the Jews, had been born. King Herod, who held the power, in his insecurity said, this must not be. And when the Magi escaped, realizing that Herod had no good intentions for the Christ child, Herod 
eradicated all of the male children born in Israel up to two years old to make sure that he stopped what he considered to be a a pretender to the throne. But God had prompted Mary and Joseph to take their son Jesus to Egypt to escape. This 1,260 days is equivalent to 42 months. Is this talking specifically about that? It could be. Or it could be talking about other places where the, the courts of the temple are overrun and the Gentiles run amok about it and basically treat it as if it's common ground. We don't know. We don't want to press it too much. But long story short, this dragon who we're about to find out is Satan personified, is seeking to destroy the Christ child. He tried to do it using Herod as a pawn, preying upon Herod's insecurities. He sought to do it through temptations in the wilderness where he questioned Jesus' identity as God's son and tried to get him to do it a different way. He sought to do it through the cross by getting the Jews to kill Jesus. But what he considered to be his greatest victory, we know today to be his greatest defeat because it defanged the power of sin and death and took his biggest tool out of his hand to keep us separated from God. Let's keep reading. Then a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. See that this dragon is an angelic being. Many people understand him to be, at one point, the Lord uh, or the, the leader of the band or the worship team of heaven, who was intended to glorify God, but instead began to glorify himself and said, maybe I could do a better job. But Satan was not strong enough. And they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, this ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now has come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah, his anointed Redeemer. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury. Because he knows his time is short. Satan has already tried to overthrow God, has already tried to usurp his position. When he failed at that, we already know how the story ends, right? We know that God will be victorious over him and Satan knows it as well. But like a tyrannical despot who is unwilling to let go of the last vestiges of power, he will do anything in his power to take the fight, back to his enemy. And if he can't hurt God, then what is he going to do? Well, what any, any per, sadly, the lowest form of warfare, which is take the fight to the innocents. You try to hurt the one you really want to hurt by hurting the ones that he cares about, his kids. And we read that in verse 17. Jump down to there. Then the dragon who, who sought to destroy Mary, sought, sought to destroy this Christ child. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. Those who keep God's commands and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. What we see here 
is an articulation of a war that rages around us, though we can't see it with our eyes. There is a spiritual battle for our hearts every moment of every day. And Satan, he's defeated. It's just a matter of time before he admits that and before Christ returns and and throws off the yoke of Satan once and for all. But in the meantime, he's looking to take down as many people as he can. And when we say yes to Jesus Christ, a big target is placed on our backs and we become fair game in his mind. Welcome to the war. We can ignore it, but we do so at our own peril. Because to, to use the words of Aragorn uh, in the second installment of Lord of the Rings, war is upon us, whether we would choose to recognize that fact or not. Um, I, I, I just cannot help but think that this message that I'm speaking right now probably uh, <laughs> conflicts greatly with how the stage is decorated. This probably doesn't feel like when you showed up to church today and we let the Advent read, you probably go on, this doesn't feel like a Christmas message. And I get that because we're so used to thinking of Christmas through the eyes of a Thomas Kincaid painting of the nativity. <laughs> thinking of a barn where even the animals don't defecate there. It smells beautiful. <laughs> Mary, who's just given birth, has her hair done. Joseph, who just became a father of God's son, is like, cool, what's up? I'm chill, right? Promise you didn't feel that way. Jesus, who was just born, doesn't look alien and disfigured. Looks like he's four. But what I want us to to recognize is that from a spiritual perspective, that silent night was not such a silent, peaceful night. Because of what that night symbolized in the spiritual realm. Jesus' birth was the long-awaited confrontation where God finally took the fight back to the enemy. And by sending Jesus into the world, he was basically saying, I'm going to take back what rightfully belongs to me, which you have claimed as your own. And you have used sin to separate mankind into, you have called yourself the king of this world. Well, I got news for you. You are not. And in that perspective, that beautiful placid nativity story That was an invasion into enemy-occupied territory that is more akin to D-Day when the Allied forces stormed the beaches of Normandy. And if you've ever watched Saving Private Ryan, we won't watch it today, but if you ever watched it, wasn't calm, peaceful, and placid. It has more to do with D-Day than it does with a Thomas Kincaid painting. Think about D-Day for a moment. On that day, Thousands of young men stormed the beaches of Normandy to try to get just a toehold into enemy-occupied territory. They fought and died to get just a toehold of beach. In hindsight, historians point to that day and say, on that day, the war was all but won. Once the Allied forces established a beachhead, all that remained was them to slowly roll up the Nazi war machine and to take back the land that rightfully belonged to the people. 
And yet, imagine being one of those people living in enemy-occupied Europe in the 11 months between D-Day and V-Day, the day that the Allies finally declared victory over their enemy. Although D-Day may have been the day where the war was all but won, Hitler didn't go down without a fight. And those 11 months were some of the most hard-fought, painful months of the entire war. Now imagine us in the same position as one of those people living between D-Day and V-Day because Jesus' birth and his walk to ultimately Golgotha, where he gave his life on the cross. That was our D-Day. That was him establishing a beachhead. That was him inaugurating the beginnings of the kingdom of God. But it is not complete. We are not yet at that point where every eye has been dried and where every tear no longer has a reason to fall except for joy because there is no more sin, there is no more death, there is no more pain. We're not there yet, obviously. And so we live in the in-between. And we have an enemy who is not willing to concede defeat even though he knows his time is short and he is furious. And so he's looking to take as many of us down with him as he can. Now some people hearing this, maybe even some of you in here this morning, go, I'm Eric, I'm uncomfortable with this because I'm envisioning you talking about some enemy with a tail and a pitchfork and some horns and red and it's just kind of like, you know what? Hollywood has had a field day with this, but this is mythology. This is just the way that humanity from an early stage tried to explain the brokenness we see around us because quite honestly, we're people who love to pass the buck. We love to blame someone else and this is how we blame Somebody for the brokenness of this world. And, and, and we ignore Satan at our own peril. Because our enemy, James described, uh, described him as a roaring lion prowling around looking for someone whom he may devour. Well, what is one of the lion's most powerful weapons? It's his ability to hide. It's his ability to slink around and attack from the shadows. And when we deny that there is an enemy for our souls who is in conflict with and is looking to thwart our Father's purpose and plans for this world and his purpose and plans for us, well, then there's, there's no reason to, to protect ourselves and to be on guard from a fictitious enemy, right? So we write it off and we have absolute, we, we, we just blind ourselves to the war that rages around us. And may I repeat, we, we can ignore Satan, but we do so to our own peril and to the peril of our families and loved ones. But on the flip side, we can also go way too far the other way. And we can begin to find a demon under every rock. And every time you have a flat tire, Satan. Every time you get a letter from the IRS, Satan. Right? Every time you get cut off on the freeway. Every time the line is too long at Costco and you don't want to wait and you get irritated. Every time somebody says something negative to you, Satan. Right? And every time you make a mistake. Every time you are selfish. Every time anything goes different from what you would choose. You can just point your finger at Satan and say it's him. And one of the problems 
of going the opposite direction, of moving away from just ignoring and pretending he doesn't exist, is that we can make him into way too big of an enemy. We can ascribe way too much power and authority to him. In many ways, we, we kind of go the route of Star Wars, where we begin to view Satan as the counterpart to God. God is the light force. Satan is the dark force, right? And according to Star Wars, those must always be in balance. So therefore, Satan must be, you know, just as strong as God. That is absolutely contrary to what the Bible says. Satan is not nearly as strong as our father God. That's what we call dualism. And it is certainly people embrace or perceive, even if we would never go so far as to say it. But let's just put a few things in perspective here. One, Satan is not equal to our God. He's a created being. Who was he created by? Oh, that's right, our Father God. Secondly, words like omniscience, knowing everything, words like omnipotence, totally powerful, can do anything he wants. Words like omnipresent, everywhere in every moment. Those are words that describe our Father God. Those are not words that describe our enemy. And so when we begin to view him as just as powerful as our God, we are giving him far too much credit. And I would suggest to you that our enemy does not have nearly the power as our father. As Peter says, greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. That, that is the hope that we have in standing against our enemy. Secondly, his only power is really the power that we give him. As people who have been filled with the Holy Spirit, he does not have the ability to possess us. How can you possess something that's already possessed by the Spirit of God? can't. But how do you, I mean, how do you begin to stand against an enemy who is conniving? Like it would be important for us to understand how he's going to attack us if we're going to hope to stand, right? Do you guys remember the, some of you will remember the movie Patton. One of my favorite moments in that movie is when Hitler's tank commander, Rommel, who is one of the most celebrated tacticians in the history and particularly of tanks, he was the man. He's coming upon the allied forces and upon their tanks. And we're sure that he's going to win because he's Rommel. This is how he rolls. And then suddenly, Patton's tank army swoops in and decimates Rommel. And it pulls back. And here's Patton with, with the goggles watching this. And he puts the goggles down and he goes, I read your book! <laughs> when you know the way the enemy's going to attack, you can withstand him a whole lot better, can't you? Yeah. And so how will our enemy attack us? That's the question we want to ask. Well, let us remember that his attacks are far more spiritual than they are physical. He doesn't attack us with bullets and bayonets. He attacks us with lies. He attacks us with accusations. He attacks us with temptations. And when we give into those temptations, he attacks us with shame and guilt. Oh, How could you ever do that? If anybody found out about this, they'd be disgusted. They want nothing to do with you. You better hide that down deep. And we hide them in the shadow areas of our lives, which just gives the prowling lion exactly what he wants. How does our enemy, this devious, cunning, weakling, 
who is already defeated but just won't admit it. How does he fight? Well, he loves to attack our perspective of our Father God. He loves to attack our identity as his kids. And he loves to attack our perspective of one another, our brothers and sisters. Just think back for a moment to the Garden of Eden, the first time we see him attack in Scripture. When he comes in, he doesn't lead with temptation. He doesn't say, fruit, eat. Instead, he's way more cunning and devious than that. He starts by undermining Adam and Eve's perception of their father. Did God really say not to touch that? You won't die. Don't you realize? He's made you deficient. And he's holding out on you. He doesn't want you to be like him. Man, that's really sad. You, you, you believed him, I mean. And once they begin to question God's goodness, then, then he points to the fruit and says, hey, this can give you what he hasn't given you. But he starts by undermining their perception of God. Or fast forward to when Jesus has just been baptized by God. We see this moment as the inauguration of his public ministry. When he goes from being a part of his family to now being God's Messiah. caring for. He's always been the Messiah. But now all of a sudden he's starting his three-year public ministry. And it begins with God speaking a blessing over his son. This is my son whom I love and with you I am well pleased. Jesus never had to question who he was or who he was serving when he went through his ministry. But Satan shows up right on the heels of that in the wilderness. And wouldn't you know it, he begins to undermine the very thing that God has just spoken over his son. If you really are the son of God, then prove it. Turn these stones into bread. If you really are the son of God, then jump off the the, the top of the temple because scripture says that the angels won't even let you strike a heel. Oh yeah, you want to redeem the world? That's fine. That's fine. We can do that. And you don't even have to go to the cross. You don't have to suffer for a moment. You worship me. I'll give you everything. This is the cunning, devious nature of the attacks of our enemy. And our enemy loves to shape the way we view one another. Rather than viewing one another as fellow image bearers who is desperately loved by our Father God, he begins to point out inconsistencies. He begins to focus on comparison so that we'll stop looking at one another as valuable and instead looking at one another as competition. Hey, look at her. Look what they have. Look at, look at their, their house that they live in. Look at their family and how much better, uh, you know, their kids act towards them. Look at the cars they drive. Look at the job. Why did that person get that promotion? You deserve that promotion. This isn't fair. That person's better than you? That's ridiculous. And in, in those moments, as we entertain those thoughts and those lies and those twistings of the truth, we st- cease to look at one another as fellow image bearers. We cease to look at one another as loving and we begin to look at them as competition. And in the same way that Satan went after Cain when his brother was given a blessing by God saying, hey, I really appreciate the offering you're bringing. In the same way that Satan twisted that, he will twist the blessings we see in other people's lives and tell them there it's a curse for our lives, that because we didn't get the same thing, that it's not fair. And in that moment, murder is birthed in our heart, even if we never act on it. 
This is the cunning and crafty way that our enemy seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. That he seeks to cause us to take our eyes off of our Father and off of the hope that we have and to forget who we are and begins to lead us down into the gutters where the rotten fruit of this world grows and says, hey, eat this, this will satisfy you in ways that he never could. So how do we stand against that? Or in fact, the question that we need to ask first is, what should we do against an enemy who doesn't come at us physically, but rather spiritually and attacks us in ways that we can't even see? How do we stand against that? Let's, let's go back for just a moment to Ephesians chapter 6. Can you turn back there? Because there's something I really want us to see. Our, I, th- this is what I would posit to you. Our job as sons and daughters of God is not to defeat Satan, not to overthrow him. That's Jesus's job. We read in Revelation how that will finally happen. He's already taken the first blow. D-Day is over. We know that V-Day is coming. But how do we live in light of being in the in-between with a target on our back and an enemy that would love to twist and change our perspectives of God, ourselves, and one another. Our job is not to defeat Satan. Our job is simply to stand against his attacks. Let me just read the first four verses from 10 to 13. And notice how many times Paul tells us to stand. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God, So that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now, there's a good word to describe the way the devil likes to come after us. The way that these spiritual forces come after us. They're scheming. They're underhanded. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore... Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after all you have done, and after you have done everything, what are we to do? To stand. In case you didn't get it the first two times he said it. And by the way, in case you didn't get it the first three times he said it, in the very next verse, he starts with that word again. We'll get to that next week. Our job is not to defeat Satan. That's Jesus' job. Our job as sons and daughters of God is to stand against his attacks, to stand against his lies, to stand against the twisting of the truth, to stand against his accusations, to stand against the ways that he would like to change the way we view one another, the way we view ourselves. Because honestly, if he can't get us to reject our identity as sons and daughters of God outright, to reject the gospel, that's a pipe dream. There's no chance for me there. If you knew half the stuff I've done, he would never want me in his family. If Satan can't get us to reject that, what does he do? He tries to get us so preoccupied with earning it. It's not fair that Jesus would take my sins upon himself. I need to do something, obviously, to be deserving of it. So what do I have to do? How do I have to prove it? And every time we stumble, it's like, oh, you better do something more. And it turns grace into work, which is... When you have earned grace, it's not grace at all. And it completely changes the heart of it. 
It puts all the onus on us rather than recognizing that Jesus has already done everything. Satan wants us to try to earn what is already ours. He wants us to try to prove who God has already said we are. Who are we going to trust? So, how do you fight a war against an enemy that doesn't come with bullets and bayonets, but rather comes with lies and accusations and spiritual weapons to cut us in ways that we can't even see, but are far more lasting and far more damaging? Well, you stand against him with spiritual armor. And the very next thing Paul will go into is to describe the kind of armor, the kind of weaponry we have to stand against his attacks. We will look at that next week. Okay, we're going to get into that next week, but I don't want to just leave you with, hey, you're at war. Be warm and well fed. Happy Christmas, right? We're not going to do that. I would like to share with you one more really, really important thing that we need to keep in mind. Because we have a cunning, crafty, devious enemy who's after us, who loves to twist the truth, who loves to make us think that our enemy is the people sitting next to us. The enemy is the people that we live nearby. The enemy is the people we, we hear about on the news and go, oh, they don't represent me. Or, man, you know, if people would just get in line and, and, and understand, whatever. I mean, they are not the enemy. We have an enemy. And it's the same enemy who's been trying to take our father's purposes and twist them and, and, and frustrate them. And he's after us because he wants to hurt our father. But what's important for us to keep in mind is that we are not defenseless, nor are we powerless in this fight. Remember, the only power that our enemy has is the power we give him. He cannot possess us. He cannot dictate our actions. All he can do is lie to us tempt us, get us to believe something so that we follow him rather than trusting what God has said and follow him. And once we do that, he shames us into hiding. So we keep following him rather than reaching out to our father, God, who loves us enough that every time we turn around and go, I'm sorry. He's like, I love you. Come home. Right. He's infinitely gracious, but our enemy doesn't want us to remember that. He just wants us to remember the ways that we've fallen short and we've all fallen short. So it's easy. But we are not powerless to stand against him. We have authority. I love the way that Peter says it. If you resist the devil, he will flee from you. We have the ability to stand with authority against the enemy and make him flee. Some might go, well, what do you mean by authority? How does that work? I mean, is this an authority that we have in and of ourselves? No. We're not powerful enough to stand against Satan on our own strength. But we don't stand in our own strength. Go back to Ephesians 6 verse 10. Paul is very clear to start this entire thing out. And the very first thing he says when he talks about spiritual warfare is this. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, not in your mighty power. Okay? Which is good news because we all know we're not strong enough. How does this work? How does authority work? The best way I've heard it described is imagine that you've just gotten your license, but at this point you don't have a car. So you go to a car lot and you walk around and you see exactly the car that you would want to drive. It's beautiful. It's got everything you want. You want to own it. You want to drive it off the lot, but you know that you don't have a job. You don't have money and you have no line. You have no credit to your name, right? 
the owner of the car lot is not about to let you drive off the lot with that brand new car because of your line of credit, your name or anything. But you're not by yourself. You see, your father has come with you. And on his signature alone, by his authority alone, you drive off of that lot with that vehicle. And in the same way, we have the authority to command Satan to leave us alone, to take back the spiritual footholds, the strongholds that we have yielded to him by believing his lies and following him for far too long. Lies that we believed about ourselves. Lies we believed about our father being something perhaps like our earthly flawed fathers. Lies that we've begun to believe about people around us. We have the ability to get, begin tearing those strongholds down and removing the influence of our enemy from our lives. Not because of our own strength, but because we are in Christ. And because we are in Christ, we have access to the Father's authority. Does this make sense? The best book, for those of you who are like, do I believe this, Eric? I'd like to know more about it. The best book I can point you towards is called I Give You Authority. Very helpful title. This is what it's about. I Give You Authority is written by a guy named Charles Kraft. We actually had him here about five years ago. The last person you would ever expect to be having a conversation about spiritual warfare. He reminds me a lot, a great deal of Merv. Gentle, loving, kind, grandfatherly, wise. And yet... he was able to articulate something that is very true, that is very scripturally founded. We have authority, not in and of ourselves, but as sons and daughters of God, we have authority in Christ. God bless you. And because of that, because there is power in the name of Jesus, we can make the enemy flee. I remember a couple... Uh, Seven or eight years ago, I was living down the street and there was a a young man whose mother had practiced witchcraft. When he was younger, he had supposedly opened the third eye, things that I'd never heard about. And it was spiritual stuff. And I was beginning to lean into it with him and grapple with him in those areas of spiritual exploration that he had had as a child. That very night that I'd prayed with him, As I was sleeping, I woke up and I couldn't breathe at all. It felt as if there was something sitting on my chest. Couldn't speak, couldn't move, couldn't breathe. And from that moment, the only thing that I could utter, the only word I could get off of my lips was Jesus. And the moment that I said that name, that that weight lifted. That wasn't the only time. It's been several times that I've had moments like that. There is a spiritual force We can chalk it up to mythology. I can tell you from personal experience that is not the case. We have an enemy who is prowling around looking to take us down. He's very crafty and oftentimes he will be underhanded. And and it will be simply things he whispers in our ear that we begin to believe. And that's how he gets his control. That's how he gets us to deviate ever so slightly. But we are not powerless. To, to give you the very broad brushstrokes, cliff notes version of how we can take authority over the enemy. Number one, we begin with confession. Because consider if we want to look at demons like rats, look at your sin like trash. Rats are attracted to trash. And you can spend a lot of energy trying to get rid of the rats. But if you don't clear out the trash, they're just going to come back. So you begin by clearing out the trash. Then it's a whole lot easier to get rid of the rats. So you begin by confessing your sins to God, to one another, to an accountability partner. Once you've done that, once you've stripped away the fig leaves and come into the light, that's where God can do the healing. 
When you believe the enemy, you keep hiding in the shadows. That's where the enemy can keep getting at you. So first, confession clears out the trash so that you can deal with the rats. Then, you want to address those spirits that have been messing with you. Now, you may recognize in your own life a type of spirit. Maybe it's a spirit of anger. Maybe it's a spirit of insecurity. Maybe it's a spirit of lust. Maybe it's a spirit of of divisiveness. Whatever you might be. Maybe you have no idea. I typically don't. I don't know a whole lot of names of, of spirits, and I have a, I, I get concerned trying to name them. So I like to just kind of give a, a, an overarching thing, and this is what I learned from Charles Kraft. I will share it with you. I address them this way. If there is any spirit messing with me, messing with my family, messing with this church, that does not bend a knee to Jesus Christ and call him Lord. That's pretty all-encompassing, isn't it? Because there are certainly spirits who bend a knee to Jesus Christ and are doing, the angels do his bidding, but there are spiritual forces that do not, that are trying to thwart his bidding. So if there is any spirit that does not bend a knee to Jesus Christ, I'm talking to you. In the name of Jesus, now we begin to take authority. In the name of Jesus, I bind you. And I revoke any agreements that I or somebody in my family or somebody in this church has made. Any foothold you think you have a right to, I revoke it in the name of Jesus. Remember, there's power in the name of Jesus. Any lies that you have spoken, we, we plead the blood of Jesus over them. God, would you shine your truth into it to take care of it? But any spirits that do not bend a knee to Jesus Christ, we now send you I like this the best because we don't say you destroyed or whatever. We say we send you to the foot of the cross. Jesus, you determine what you want to do with them. But you may not return. You may not send any other spirits to torment me or anybody else I know, anybody else that calls Jesus Christ Lord. You have no authority. We revoke it in the name of Jesus. And then I invite God to protect me, to send, I like to call it like a phalanx of angels or a hedge of protection around my family, around my home. When my kids are having those night terrors, could it be a dream? Sure, it might be a bad dream. But there are, I think that my kids are a little more discerning of the spiritual realm than somebody who tends to get caught up in his head. And so when our kids have had dreams or when our kids are acting not like normal, I will take authority over my home. When there are things that are going on, I will take authority. Just this week, as I've been preparing for this, I've been more aware that this is an area, even within our own church, where we need to be taking authority because we have an enemy that does not want us to talk about the fact that he exists and that he messes with us. And so just this week, I've had about three or four opportunities and reasons to lean, lean in and take authority over the enemy. And I love to kind of go through each piece of the armor. Again, we'll talk about that next week. But here's what I want you to walk out of here with this week. You are not defenseless. You are not powerless. Yes, there's a war raging around us. Yes, we have an enemy. It's the same enemy that's been after God. And and you are part of that battle, whether you would choose to recognize it or not. Because you are a son or a daughter of God. And even if you're not You better believe that the enemy doesn't want you getting anywhere near it. So he will thwart you. And right now he's whispering in your ear, this is garbage. This doesn't exist. He's been watching way too many Hollywood movies. Or Disney cartoons. Is that not crazy? But no, whatever. There is a war for your hearts, for your minds, for for your perspectives. 
May I simply encourage you to not get overwhelmed, to not be terrified, because greater is he that is in you than is in the world. And we already know how this fight ends. Rest in your identity as a son, as a daughter of God. Rest in the power that comes from him and do not think you have to overcome the enemy. Simply stand against his lies. And when you hear something that sounds like accusation, when you hear something that sounds like condemnation, God doesn't speak with condemning words. He certainly convicts. He never condemns. So if you are feeling condemned, you know where that's coming from. And you can just say, Satan, get away from me in the name of Jesus. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. And we're going to take a few minutes to celebrate the power that we have in the name of Jesus, to break the chains that our enemy loves to wrap us in. We're also going to, because I, because I talked for a really long time, we're also going to take offering right now. If you're just visiting, please do not feel any need to give. The only thing I would love from you is to know that you are here. There's a connection card in your seat back. Please fill it out. Let us know you're here. If there are ways that we can pray for you, please let us know. Fippers, I'm going to ask that you be up here. I'll be over here. Hefe's in the back. If you want prayer for something as we are worshiping these last couple of songs, please feel free to come forward. We would love to pray for you. But now let's just rest in the power that we have in our, in, in our Father, in our identity as sons and daughters of God. Let's, let's worship together.